0: Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco. This week, Dan Pfeiffer, former senior advisor to President Obama, and now a co-host of Pod Save America, a political podcast born out of its host's existential crisis in the wake of the 2016 election. On February 27, 2020, less than a week shy of the California Democratic primary, Dan Pfeiffer came to the Sidney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco to talk with Lara Bazelon about the primaries and how he believes Democrats can unseat Trump. Join me now for a conversation with Dan Pfeiffer.
1: Good evening, my name is Lara Bazelon, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's City Arts and Lectures event with Dan Pfeiffer. Dan Pfeiffer was one of the first people to volunteer for Barack Obama's campaign in 2008, and he was one of the last to leave in 2015. In the intervening seven years, he served in key roles, including as the White House communications director and Barack Obama's senior advisor. He was in the room for countless history-making moments, and it was his job to communicate them to the rest of us. And now Dan does something similar in a bit of a different way. As one of the co-hosts of Pod Save America, With fellow Obama administration alums, John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, and John Lovett. He tries to keep us sane as we careen from impeachment to the race for the Democratic nomination with pandemics and climate disasters and daily presidential scandals of breathtaking scope thrown in for good measure. Dan is also a writer. He is an excellent writer. His first book, The New York Times number one best-selling, Yes We Still Can, and his current book, Untrumping America, are crucial roadmaps. Dan is going to tell us what we got right, what we screwed up, and how we can come back stronger than ever. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dan Pfeiffer. Dan, you write in this book that you have, have been um, radicalized by Donald Trump's election, and I'm curious to know how you would define that and what it actually means in terms of your daily life.
2: Sure, I am someone who, if the Democratic establishment is a thing that exists, I have been part of it for a very long time. I spent 20 years in politics. I, in much, for much of that time, I believed in that politics was something that, tr- that while messy, trended in the right direction, I believe that even if I disagreed with members of the other party, most of them were operating in good faith. I believe that norms were something to be respected, traditions were important, and that ultimately, our democracy was something that, like our politics, while messy, functioned. And I have come to realize both what happened on election day in 2016 and how the country has responded to Donald Trump every day since, that our democracy does not work. And it has fundamentally changed my view of how politics works and what Democrats need to do.
1: Okay, so that leads me beautifully into my next question, which <laughs> I'm, is- I'm glad I could help, yes. Yeah, that's super helpful, thank yes. you. Um, we planned everything in yes. advance. It's all memorized. So. My question about that is, what's the most important lesson or lessons that we should take away from what happened in 2016 so that it doesn't happen again in 2020?
2: I, so I, I give you a couple. One is Donald Trump is not an aberration or an accident. He's the logical extension of the Republican Party. He. So that's one Two. Donald Trump did not break our democracy. We have Donald Trump because we have a broken democracy and that what Democrats have to recognize, and this is the most important one, which is that Politics is rigged in favor of conservatives, and that is both a product of a set of decisions made hundreds of years ago by founders whose judgment hasn't always stood the test of time, and a strategy by Republicans, including Mitch McConnell and the Koch brothers, to ruthlessly exploit our politics in order to protect the political power of a shrinking, mostly white conservative minority
1: which is also helped by the Senate and the way that we elect senators. Yes,
2: the Senate is something I blame the founders on, but I blame the founders for But Mitch McConnell has. uh, He understands that and has leveraged that to his power, and I think Democrats have been, myself included over time, have been naive about just how powerful and dangerous the Senate is.
1: One thing that I always wondered about is it seemed like we had this unbelievably popular president in Barack Obama who was able to bring together this coalition. But while he was president in very important states in this country, Republicans were taking over. They were taking over the State House. They were taking Mm -hmm. over governorships. And by the time Obama left, they had majorities in these crucial states. And why was it that Obama's coattails were so short? Why wasn't the Obama coalition the Democratic coalition?
2: I think the the best way to understand what happened to American politics during the Obama era and how we got to this moment is to look back at the, the election in 2010. This was the first midterm election after Barack Obama was elected. That is historically a terrible election for an incumbent president. This 2018 would be Donald Trump's first midterm election. And it's hard to remember things in this day and age, but to whatever I recall, that did not go well for him. And, But you put on top of the historical trends, unemployment was around 10%. The, and then there's a thing people forget about this, which is in January of that year, the Supreme Court ruled in the Citizens United case, opening the floodgates to money. And so we had this additional problem that came against us, which was this, all of a sudden now, a corporation or super PAC could raise and spend unlimited amount of monies and Democrats were who we were going to have a tough election under the best scenario. And this was the worst scenario. And Democrats were washed away. And what Republicans did with their political power, and there is a there's a lesson for Democrats in this in that time, 2010, was that is where the governorships of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, were all taken over by Republicans. State legislators, they, they rode this wave in and what they did immediately was pass voter ID cut uh, early voting, which was a huge part of how Obama won. And it's, it's important to understand what the, the message that 2008 sent to the Republicans, which is, they knew that was going to be a tough election for them. Because George Bush was, I mean, his approval rating was 28% on election day. So he was 17 points less popular than Donald Trump. So think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> That is really hard to fathom. Well, the only way to think about it is George W. Bush was supposed to speak on the first day of the Republican convention in Minneapolis, but there was a hurricane, so they canceled it, and they never rescheduled it. <laughs> so, like, And there were people who were saying, man, I hope no one gets hurt, but we are very fortunate. We don't have to have this awkward thing with the very unpopular president at our convention. And... But it wasn't the fact that Obama won wasn't a surprise. It was how he won that scared the living daylights out of Republicans because he got fifty three percent of the vote, which is the most anyone had gotten in a very long time. He won Virginia, he won Indiana, he won North Carolina, he almost won Missouri. These states that had been so Republican for so long that no one thought Obama could even compete in, he won and he won pretty easily. And that sent this message to the Republicans that the day they had feared was on their doorstep. The day when a, the demographic change in the country, America, became so much more diverse. Young people were getting involved in politics, was going to threaten their political power. So as soon as they had power again, they burned the bridge behind them and they passed voter ID. They got rid of voter, they got rid of early vote. They made it harder for the people who elected Obama to vote. And that Obama was still able to win in 2012, but by a smaller margin because of that. That killed us in 2014, and it is the reason that Donald Trump. Became elected, and here's an, an important fact, which is Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney by seven points in Wisconsin in 2012. Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by less than a point in Wisconsin in 2016. But Donald Trump got less votes than Mitt Romney did, and that's because of voter ID. So,
1: so. and I know you that was done. the
2: reaction I was hoping for. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know you've done a lot of work with Stacey Abrams. Do you want yeah. to talk about the importance yeah. of, of that work yeah. and what she's doing yes. and what Pod Save is doing with her? Yes. Okay.
2: So Stacey Abrams, for those of you who don't know, ran for governor in Georgia in 2018. She is one of the absolute most impressive people I've ever met in my life. She got more votes in <clears throat> she got more votes in Georgia than any Democrat in history, including Barack Obama, and yet she was not. She's not governor of, Virginia, of, of Georgia, because she ran against the Secretary of State, who happened to be the person in charge of elections, who purged hundreds of thousands of names from the voter rolls. An overwhelming percentage of those names included African-Americans, Stacey Abrams' base. He made up a story about election hacking. He, there were in Coincidentally, in polling places, with, with large African-American turnout in Cobb County and in, in downtown Atlanta, there were, there were fewer voting machines than you would imagine. And basically, like, like this is not, um, it's not hyperbole. Brian Kemp stole the election from Stacey Abrams. And what Stacey is, has done since then uh, is start this group called Fair Fight, which is focused on protecting voters from voter suppression in the battleground states. They're gonna have organizers and making sure people know what the laws are, what ID you need to bring, who is eligible, when the registration deadlines are, and truly trying to protect voting rights. I get, like, this is something that Potsdam Safety America works very closely with them. They've raised over $2 million. The, um, thanks to, I'm sure as many of you in this room, we, I gave a portion of the proceeds of the, all the books bought in the pre-sale period for my book to Fair Fight, and it, I do think that, organiza- that Fair Fight could be the difference between winning and losing this presidential election.
1: And another organization that you're involved with that may be very important is Leave it All in the Field, yep. right? And so can you explain what that is and the purpose of Leave it All in the Field?
2: Leave it All in the Field is a, is a fund to raise money to help train and hire organizers to work in battleground states. And so, like right now, there's been this presidential campaign that's going on, I'm, Democratic primary campaign. I'm sure many of you are following it and enjoying it deeply, I'm sure. And... <laughs> Um, and they've been focused entirely on four states thus far, and now the campaign's going to move national, but for most of the candidates don't have staff in any of those states. And as soon as we have a nominee, that nominee is going to have to hire thousands of organizers to go work in 16 battleground states. and that is a, a huge logistical endeavor. And so what we're doing is helping a group called Organizing Corps hire and train people now so that they can transition immediately on the day we have a nominee to go, they can move right, they can just go on payroll in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or wherever else. And that's a huge thing because for Hillary Clinton's campaign, will tell you that by the time they became the nominee, they would have, like the campaign would have allocated budget for a thousand new field organizers, but it took so long to hire that they didn't get that number for months. And so this will allow our nominee to hit the ground running because Donald Trump has had a... Huge head start. Giving you a sense of how big a head start he has, Donald Trump filed for re election five, af- five hours after the inauguration in 2017. So he has been working on this for a very long time. And, and our candidate's going to need every advantage they possibly can. Leave it on the field is going to help with that.
1: And it is a big, big lift mm. because I think I listened to this on Pod save that in one event, Donald Trump raised $10 million. One yeah. event. He
2: did $30 million in a weekend. Right. So there's That's a lot, lot of catch-up yes. to be done. Yes. It does help that he is forced to spend a lot of that money on attorneys. <laughs> Some of it goes to uh, back to Donald Trump via uh, Mar-a-Lago. Um, there's, an enti- there's a whole group of C-list White House staffers who were kept on payroll at the RNC in order to keep them from writing books. But that he still is going to have a huge money advantage.
1: So, speaking of Donald Trump-
2: Yes, you, we're familiar with him, yes. Yes,
1: well, you, you write about this phenomenon in your book that's specific to Republicans and makes them effective, and you call it the advantage. Yes. And <laughs> you talk about the fact that it's, it's incredibly effective because they're ruthless and they do things because they can, because I said so. Yeah. And that Democrats don't have that advantage because Democrats are sort of fundamentally decent people trying to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the problem is, at least in my mind, the Democrats are Charlie Brown Mm. and the Republicans are Lucy with the football. So how do you kind of write that imbalance? Because as you say, it's not really possible morally and for just branding reasons for Democrats to cross over and try to be a poor Mm. imitation of kind of the world's most raging, you know.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Were, <laughs> I can never remember whether, whether whether we're allowed to swear here or not,
1: but I but I it's okay. I don't care anymore. D- yeah. Trump is president, Guys. it's
2: fine. Um, the, then, since many of my friend's children have learned the F word from listening to Pot Safe America in the car, I've tried to be a little more judicious, but i sometimes my rage gets the better of me. Um, so a couple things here. One is one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to help convince as many Democrats as I possibly could, that Republicans are not gonna have an epiphany when Donald Trump is gone. Mitch McConnell is not gonna become agreeable. Lindsey Graham's not gonna go back to three personalities ago. <laughs> <laughs> Susan Collins is not gonna act on her uh, concerns and fears. That this is, this is who the Republican Party is. And it is not that they are bad people, although some of them are, I would put Mitch McConnell in that category. It's that this is what their political incentives are. They are dependent upon a angry white base with, that is hyped up on very inflammatory racial grievance language. Like that, that is the only way for that for them to win, they need that base scared and fired up and turning out and they need to have strategies to prevent the rest of the country from voting. And so that's how they're going to be, whether Trump is president or, Mike Pence is president or Don Jr. is president or anyone, it doesn't matter. Sorry about the Don Jr. thing, I know that's unfair. <laughs> and so this is a thing, uh, this is like this debate in the Democratic Party. And it, there are a couple ways to, it's described. There's the, you know, people take on the, the Michelle Obama's favorite line from her 2016 convention speech, which is when they go low, we go high. And some people are like, well, why do we go high? Shouldn't we punch them low? Which is very specific, I think. And and I, re- I describe it as the paler shade of orange theory, which is why can't we be more like Trump? Like, why don't we do that? Like, what is the inverse of McConnell? And the problem is, is we have a different strategy. Like we just have a different, Democrats have a different, like I like to think we're better, more decent people and we don't have a Mitch McConnell on our side. It's a low bar. It's, yeah, it is, don't get me wrong, yes. We are more decent than Mitch McConnell, that does not get you the Nobel Prize. And, but is we have a different, political calculus, which is for Democrats to win, we ha- it's a, it's a math problem is we have to turn out people who don't always vote. They may be first time voters, they May be people who were involved in the process who tuned it out. And so we cannot operate in a, in a cynical way. Cynicism is an ally of conservatism in American politics. And so we need a strategy that, and I argue in this book that needs to be strategic and tough and know who the Republicans are, but it, ca- it has to rely on, hope and inspiration. And I know it works because Barack Obama won 51% of the vote twice. He's the only president since Eisenhower to have a majority twice. And there are lessons to be derived from how he did it, which is you can successfully turn people out, you can successfully persuade people, and you don't have to twist yourself into a pretzel in order to succeed.
1: So I think part of succeeding is learning how to work the media, and mm-hmm. nobody knows more about that than you, <laughs> and I kind of want to talk a little bit about you and the media, Sure. I feel like you have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the media as as Dan Pfeiffer, the citizen. It's like yes. you have this basic distrust of what you call the morning Joe crowd, the Acela corridor mm-hmm. of pundits and former pundits who are giving us their opinions on cable news. So. What is different about you and John and John and Tommy and Pod Save America other than the very important fact that you are based in California?
2: Well, that's a huge part. There's no Acela corridor. Um, So I wanna, let me, like I have had a love-hate relationship with the media over the course of time in my career. What I have come to recognize in my later, more mature Californian stage of life is the media is not one thing, right? It is, in this day and age, it's all things. When I worked in the White House, the media was the reporters who covered the White House, it was the networks, it was the New York Times, it was the Washington Post, and there was like a set of people. And sometimes they were great at their jobs, and sometimes they were terrible. They were always annoying to me, that is not their fault, that's probably actually their job. Sometimes in my exhaustion and stress, I would allow that fact to uh, be apparent to them. Sometimes no. I know, no. I know, and some of it, I'm, and, I, and some of it, I'm not proud of. Some of my fights with Fox News, I'm quite proud of, and <laughs> I was right, and I'm glad people have come around to my way of thinking years later. But like, I don't. Maybe nothing's different than us from us. But what, like, what we have tried to bring to like our role as self-hating pundits is the following things. One, we view our platform, which we are so fortunate and lucky to have, as a way to get people engaged. Like we are not, and like I think the best way Pod Save America has been described is a way John Lovett described it once, which is Pod Save America, where we tell you what's happening in the news, but also what you can do about it. Mm -hmm. And so like that is different. And like our biases are like, on our sleeves, they're on our shirts, everyone knows who we are. And so we try to interpret the news from the perspective of people who have worked on campaigns, worked in White Houses, engaged with reporters on a prof- like as professionals, and explain to people what's happening, do it in a way that is hopefully entertaining, sometimes profane, I know, I'm sorry. Um, and so, like, I don't know if, like, I don't know if we're I think we're different. Maybe we're less different than we think sometimes. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes I say things and I'm like, oh, that's a thing a pundit would say. And
1: like when you feel like you're turning into your parents. Yeah, I
2: feel. Yeah, I feel uh, I feel a little dirty at that point. And I try to correct it and maybe I'll swear once because they can't do that on Morning Joe. But I mean, ultimately, it's about getting like we would not be doing this podcast in this era if we didn't think it was a a way to encourage people to get involved in politics, everything from voting to volunteering to donating. And we have found this very engaged audience that's doing things like raising two million bucks for Stacey Abrams or doing volunteer shifts at phone banks and all of that. So that that's ultimately the goal. And if we slip into um, typical punditry, I apologize.
1: So one of the ways that I think all of you are very effective at reaching your audience is through Twitter. <clears throat> and I want you to read this highlighted passage out loud. <laughs> it's just the last couple of lines on this page. Okay. Because I think it sums up a little bit your relationship with Twitter, although I'm gonna ask you a follow-up of question. Of course.
2: <laughs> I'm so glad you picked this, because this is one of my favorite parts. <laughs> I've never done meth, but I imagine the experience is much like using Twitter. You started casually because you heard good things. Next thing you know, you've been up for 96 hours, have lost all your teeth, and are living in a shopping cart outside the local supermarket.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so when I when I read that I I I spit out my cereal. It's pretty amazing. So Yes, all of that is true, and yet you spend a lot of time on Twitter. So, and you're very successful at it. So how do you feel is the healthiest way to engage with Twitter while not going insane and being completely addicted to it? Because you also have an amazing addicted to Twitter story where you are (laughs) undergoing anesthesia. Yes, Which I'm not making you talk about, but truly speaks to profound addiction.
2: Yes, Uh, that was many, many years ago. (laughs) much, much, I'm actually not much better at all. Um, I was gonna say I was much better and I remember my wife is sitting over there and she would point out that I am not better. Look, I hate Twitter. I hate it. I hate being on it. It's like, the headquarters is like six blocks that way, people. (laughs) Some of you work there, I'm sure. (laughs) And you're the ones clapping loudest. Um, Like I do, I hate the experience of it. I find it to be miserable in some ways, but I cannot get off of it. And it is because it is where the political conversation happens. It is where it is shaped. It is where it's like 10% of Americans are on Twitter, but 100% of people who are involved in politics and media are on Twitter. And and I recognize the things I hate. Let me tell you the things I hate about it. because there are some good things. Go with hate first. Yeah, I'll start with hate. The hate is it is just this fun house mirror version of life and it rewards all the wrong, all the worst behaviors, social media in general tends to do that. Twitter is in a particularly aggressive form of it. And I think it it has such as disproportionate share, disproportionate influence. What happens on Twitter is this disproportionate influence on political coverage in America, because if something trends on Twitter, it becomes a news story, right? And because then, because 100% of reporters are on Twitter, they then treat, like sort of Twitter becomes like a man on the street interview.
1: Totally, and to the point where Twitter, just exchanges are embedded in news articles as a way to kind of prove the point that the reporter is trying to make.
2: But if if it is a man on the street interview, that is a street you do not want to visit. It is filled with some of the craziest people in the world. That, like, there is, like, there's this kind of terrible debate on Twitter about whether Twitter is quote unquote real life, and if you say Twitter is not real life, people on Twitter get very mad at you. Which kind of proves the point. Um, But, like, it both is true that Twitter is important in politics because it shapes the conversation. It is also true that that conversation is disconnected from the lives of most Americans. And you should be able to somewhere in between square that like you should be able to have both right to understand that and also cover politics in a way that accepts that reality. The part about Twitter that I think there are parts that are good, right? I do this is there is something incredibly important about the democratization of information in America, whether it is Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, the fact that any human being in the right place, in the right time, with a smartphone and a camera can be as influential as one of the three major news networks were 20 years ago. And that has mattered because we have seen things happening in parts of the world where the the U.S. news media cannot go because of Twitter, right? It is how we learned about the original Green Revolution in Iran. It is how a lot of what is happening in some of the worst parts of Syria comes to light. We have seen from the front lines of conflicts all over the world because of it. And like, the, like that part is good. And it is also like, I don't really know, I actually do not know how to get news without Twitter. Like I have, and I'm sort of a weird person because I went into the white house in 2008 or someone in 2009 where someone just emails you all the news. And so you don't ever have to worry about, like if something important happens, someone will call you and like it just shows up in your inbox. And then I left the White House and I got on Twitter and like I don't, I actually, I've thought about quitting and taking time off, but I can't figure out how I would know what was going on. It also is probably worth asking the question of, do I need to know about the dumb thing Donald Trump said three seconds after he said it? Or can I catch up on that later? Is a fair life question to ask myself. But it's a professional hazard if you pick political podcasting as a career, if that's what you call it. Yes.
1: Yeah. It does seem important if you want to do the job that you're doing. And
2: it is a way to interact. Like I do. I've had amazing interactions and conversations with our listeners because of it. Right. And people that I've met through writing these books because of Twitter. Like there is this good part, but we should be sensitive to the fact that my timeline is terrible and I'm a white guy. And the people, you know, the people
1: who are speaking back to you, who are clapping back at you, it's just insane. It's if insane. At it. And,
2: and it is so much worse for my friends who are women, who are people of color, who are particularly women of color. And like that, like that level of toxicity, like it should not be that the price of being a person in politics is you have to get be threatened have horrible racist and misogynistic things say to you. And so if we don't, that, that is the problem that has to be fixed because it is deeply unfair to so many people that as part of their job, they have to exist there and share their content there and report there whatever else. And just get, I mean, like, I mean, it just, it's, it is a, ultimately that is the worst part is what is the abuse that exists for people. And I see some of it, but it's nothing compared to what other, uh, like women and people of color stay on Twitter.
1: Right. This is a different kind of, I guess, ab- abusive behavior, but mm. I was trying my best to watch the Democratic debates in preparation for talking That's to self- you.
2: That's self-abuse? Yeah, <laughs> yes.
1: yes. And I just couldn't finish last night. I just couldn't get through it. And I'm curious to know whether you think it was as awful, this one and the last one, as I do and a lot of people that I talk to do in the sense that it just seemed like a complete free-for-all devoid of any real meaningful content. It was sort of this pile-on, and I felt like the moderators just were utterly overwhelmed, almost like substitute teachers, yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> the class was just rolling them.
2: Yeah. It, I generally hate debates. I think they were a particularly stupid way to pick a president. There are none of the skill, they're actually a p- stupid way to pick a nominee too, because I say that and people like, are like, yeah, but we need someone who's gonna be good in the debates. And I was like, you realize what you just said, right? But, <laughs> but Barack
1: Obama generally was very good in the debates. Exactly. On the other hand, so was Hillary Clinton.
2: And Barack Obama was good in debates until he almost lost the 2012 election with that first debate performance. Um, but he he did beat McCain several times, and but he was a terrible debater when we started that started the 2008 campaign. He got really. Oh yeah. What he, was bad? He it was he would say he takes him 25 seconds to clear his throat, so he's like a minute answer is not awesome for him, and he did he really hated like he really has this uh, his the influence of his grandparents from Kansas in him, and he hates interrupting, mm. and so he like and there were. Like we also had like nine candidates on stage in the beginning of those debates. And he would answer the questions asked of him, but he would never interrupt. And so people would be like, Obama was missing for 37 minutes in that debate. And they would, like, we always got bad. Um, we always got bad grades because that, like that's and that's another example that's probably a bad way to pick a president is they give you a grade and about
1: how often you interrupt basically. Basically, yeah, and it yourself. rewards
2: all all the worst behaviors. And so I hate debates anyway. These debate, like the debate two nights ago, was that two nights ago? Was just bad television. Like it was, it was just terrible, it was terrible. They're bad, they're usually bad at this point anyway. These candidates are tired, they, have, they are stressed out. I described, I've described this this way in the past, but they are in the six hour of a seven hour family car ride with these people and they are at <laughs> each other's throats. And uh, which explains, Maybe Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar have been sitting in the back seat too long together. <laughs> and.
1: They definitely need a timeout. Yes, they need,
2: they need time apart. And I know when, the, like, when Pete, like the, they, like, the networks tell you, like, two days beforehand what the podium position is, and they have they all have these formulas for how you do it. And I know Pete opened that envelope like it was a college acceptance letter, like, where am I gonna be standing? Oh, phew, I got like a Warren and a Biden between me and Klobuchar, so I'm safe. The, but yeah, these, deba- these debates are terrible. I don't think they're uniquely terrible. Obama and Hillary Clinton had some debates in 2008 that made these look like uh, a Kiwanis Club meeting. Like, there have been, I've never been to a Kiwanis Club, so I assume they're friendly. If not, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But like th- like this is how they are. I think it is true that for most of the debates for this primary election, the 700 we've had, they've been pretty substantive, which is unusual. And most of the, like, there have been less focus on dumb political process issues, but if it was up to me and I could go back in time, the advice I would give the DNC is to, don't give up control of your presidential election, selection, presidential nominee selection process. To the media like I think you should control the debates you should stream the debates you should invite journalists to moderate them and subject matter experts like it would be really great if we had I don't know a climate change scientist ask some questions some criminal justice reform advocates ask questions doctors and nurses yes and because ultimately CNN MSNBC ABC CBS I think are well-meaning in this but they have a very different incentive right like if you wanted a sense of how CNN and Foxes—they did a live show for the drawing of who made the debates last time, right? And so, like, they're looking for ratings, and we're looking for information for Democratic voters. And so, I would keep control of the debates in the future if we ever have additional elections. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, part of the. Freakout, it seems to me, is kind of grounded in this idea that base voters and swing voters are a zero-sum game. And so every time you reach a swing voter, you lose a base voter and vice versa. And I really think that that is the mainstream media narrative and sort of the heart of the Bernie Sanders freakout, which is that he will be unable to connect to swing voters and they will flee and either stay home or, I guess, turn out for the paler shade of orange. And you've made the argument that that's not true. So what's the basis for you combating that conventional wisdom?
2: The experience of Barack Obama winning twice by doing exactly that is a helpful. I mean, I know seven years ago seems like a long time, but it wasn't that long ago. And but I think it's important to understand how you win. In a, like if we had got rid of Electoral College, which we should do, but I don't think we're not going to get it. We're not gonna get it done by November, so we gotta operate within the, the context of these rules. If, if there was no Electoral College, then you could win in, entirely just by turning out new Democratic voters, right? That is why Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. It's why no matter who our nominee is, we'll probably get more than 3 million more votes than Trump and could still potentially not be president of the Electoral College. But because we live in Electoral College, there are three groups of voters who are gonna decide this election. There are new voters, base voters, which includes people who haven't voted before, the four million people who voted for Obama in 2012, who do not vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. There are people who um, have just aged into the electorate, young people, so there's the new voter Democratic base group. There is the world-famous, Frequent subjects of many articles in the New York Times, the Obama-Trump voters. So people who voted for Obama 2012, Trump 2016, these are mostly white people who live in rural areas, and they did mathematically decide the election for Trump. That's why he won Wisconsin, most primarily. And they are overrepresented in Wisconsin, a very important state. And then there are another group of voters who get less attention but are equally important, these are people who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, Hillary Clinton 2016, and a Democrat for Congress who does in 2018. So to win, you're going to have to turn out more base, more new Democratic voters, base voters. You're going to have to hold on to the vast majority of Romney-Clinton voters, and you're going to have to flip some Obama-Trump voters. And each candidate, each potential nominee, is going to have a different way of filling up those columns. Right, but here's the important part of that, which is one message works with all of them. This is the great superpower of the Democratic Party that worked for while we forget, which is our policies are more popular. Our advocacy for middle and working class people is more popular. Our, the Republican policies are uniformly unpopular. Right, incredibly unpopular. And so we don't have to, Pick one message for this group, one message for that group. We did that some in 2016. We got overly excited about our data that said we could tell Hispanic women over the age of 40 about this, and we could advertise on Facebook to veterans under the age of 35 in the Cuyahoga County suburbs this, when what you need is a compelling, broad based story that inspires people. And so, like, it like, People say it's, a, it's not a false choice. There is no option. There is only one option to winning. And you have to do all three of those things. So you have to find a message that accomplishes those three things.
1: I thought one of the things about your book, I can't remember which one, that I thought was incredibly powerful was when you talked about how we all know what Obama's message was that he ran on hope and change. And we all know what Donald Trump's message was because it fits on a hat. And then <laughs> you kind of posed this question, what was Hillary Clinton's message? Yeah. And no one, I mean, I couldn't remember. And it seems like maybe we're just waiting for that candidate, whoever it is, Sanders or someone else, to come up with this message that is going to somehow encapsulate their core values and speak to all these different constituencies.
2: I mean, I used to do this exercise when I was um, doing penance for my 2016 predictions, which were wrong, and I would go around, I did a bunch of like post-election panels, and I would, I would do this exercise where I'd be like, what was Donald Trump's positive message? So in campaigns, the most standard way you think about a campaign is you do this message box, which is your message for yourself, your message against your opponent. What is your opponent's message for themselves and what's their message against you? And so I would ask people, what's Donald Trump's message for himself? And they would say, make America great again, like uniformly everyone would scream it. I would ask them, what was Donald Trump's message against Hillary? And they would shout some Crooked Hillary, basically, right? Emails, crooked Hillary. I would ask them, what was Hillary Clinton's message against Trump? And the room would erupt with a thousand different things, right? He was, he's a racist. He's a misogynist. He is incompetent. He's corrupt. He's a liar. Every one of those things, equally true. And
1: stronger together. I'm with her. Right.
2: Like I'd ask him what her, what her message for herself was. And there wouldn't be an answer. Like it would be, there would actually be silence in the room a lot of times. And that. The, the two sides of the Hillary Clinton box are related because what Donald Trump did was he sucked all the oxygen out of the room or all the conversations were about Trump, but he also offered a, so such a target rich environment of terribleness that you're swinging every pitch and it wasn't ever woven into a coherent story. And so our democratic nominee is going to have to have a coherent story about why they should be president. And why Donald Trump shouldn't be president, and it, what it mean and everything has to fit into that, right? And that means sometimes you are not going to swing at a pitch of terrible, like tr- Trump will do something stupid. You don't have to respond to that. You don't have to get worked up. This, this is not to say you shouldn't call the candidate or our nominee in our party should not call Trump out for when he is racist, when he is misogynist, when he is terrible. We should do those things, but it has to be in the context of a story because. People in politics think, always think that, before Trump, it was always like, what's the bumper sticker, right? What is your bumper sticker? And then people, now that it's Trump, every donor person is like, what go, what's on our hats? Like, what are we gonna put on our hats? And that's the wrong way of looking at it. You start with a story, and then you figure out what goes on the hat. You don't start with a hat and then reverse engineer your story. It seems obvious, I know. But you would be surprised.
1: So my last question before I open it up for the audience to ask their questions is, given all of this, these these challenges and the time that we're living through, and the omnipresence that is Donald Trump, when you look ahead and think about what's next in the coming months, including whatever October surprise we're in for, <laughs> do you feel hopeful about 2020?
2: I do. I would say my hope is cautious, but I... You know, this is my 10th, I think, event I've done in the last 10 days for my book. I have had a chance to talk to a lot of groups like you, and I have sensed this palpable depression among Democrats. (laughs) And I get it, right? Like, primaries are not fun, and we are at the unfun part. And it may be that the candidate you love most is not doing as well as you would hope. It may be candidates who... Are not your favorite, are doing well, and they're all fighting with fighting with each other, and they're yelling at each other. And Donald Trump committed the most obvious impeachable offense in American history, and then got off. And there was a feeling of impotence that came from that, because it just it was just a reminder, and it's one of the the condition that one of reasons why I wrote on Trump in America to begin with is that that was an example of democracy not working. Right, the guy commits a crime. The entire country believes it and the Republicans just, you know, sweep it under the rug and get away with it. And so we feel it's just things don't feel good. But the thing I would just say to remind everyone, and, and I would say this, that it shows up in polling. Like two months ago, a majority of Democrats thought we were going to win. In a poll last week, two thirds of Democrats thought we were going to lose. And that is dangerous because if we think we're going to lose, we're not going to be engaged. And so my message to everyone is this is an incredibly winnable election. Like Trump has advantages, he's incumbent, he has a propensity for cheating, he's been known to commit crimes in the service of winning elections. But even despite all of that, we can win and we know how to do it because it just happened in 2018. And the lesson, like you ask political people about the lesson of 2018, and they'll say, well, Democrats had this healthcare message, and they didn't they didn't chase after Trump, but that's not it. Like, all that's true. That's not why we won. We won because a huge group of people got engaged in politics the day after the 2016 election. They formed groups like Swing Left and Indivisible and Run for Something and Sister District. People marched the Women's March. They went to airports after the Muslim ban. They marched for our lives after what happened at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School. And people got engaged. And I remember here in San Francisco, probably 17 months before the midterm election, I got asked to go to a swing left San Francisco meeting. And I was like happy to do it, it'd be nice. I didn't know what to expect. I thought there'd be a few people there. I get there and there are a hundred people on like a Tuesday night on a, where the weather was terrible by San Francisco standards. And those people had all just come back from getting on a bus to go knock doors in Modesto in the district that Josh Harder would eventually win. And that's why Josh Harder won that election because a bunch of citizens decided that they, that citizenship was going to be a full-time job, that they were going to make, put themselves out of their comfort zone to, to push back against what had happened in that election 2016. And so that's the formula for how we win again is it's the people in this room doing what we've done since that election to ensure that happens. And if that happens, we can win this election. And I do think if we win this election, we will look back on this period in American history and say to ourselves that, in a case of sweet irony, that the election of America's worst citizen sparked a wave of citizenship that lasts for a generation. And that is the future here. So. Fuck up, people. We, we can do this.
1: Thank you. So, we're going to open it up for questions from the audience. I imagine there are many. Okay, this, this question's all the way at your right. Got it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Oh, it's um, the person who brought me to the Swing Left meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>
3: Come see me if you want to go canvassing. And we're canvassing in Arizona, too, but that's not my question. Uh, My question is, I kind of feel like Chicken Little running around, the sky is falling, uh, because so much depends on this election. And you spoke about uh, gerrymandering, voter ID purging, and we also have Russia who is influencing and interfering in the election. So if everything depends on the election, how can we depend on an election that is so
2: corrupt? Great question, Judith. Um, It is true that Judith, uh, who helps run Swing Left San Francisco, followed me to several events and convinced me to go to that event, and I've been to about 700 of them since. uh, And Swing Left is very lucky to have her. Look, this election, like, as I said, I think the fate of the planet is on the line here. And it, like I wrote, the, like the, the reason I wrote on Trumping America was because I believe there's nothing more important than beating Trump in 2020, but beating Trump in 2020 is not enough. And so we are going to have to win this election with all of the challenges we have before us, with Russia, the influence of social media, the voter, the voter ID laws and all those things in place. But the question, and we can do that. that is a, we can still do that. But the question is, what do we do after this election? And in this book, I lay out a series of ideas for the Democratic Party to take on the exact things you mentioned, right? Gerrymandering, voter suppression, the way the courts have been stacked against Democrats, and do that because we're gonna have to win on a rig playing field this time, and then we have to use every ounce of power we have to unrig our elections going forward.
0: This question's coming from the very center of the orchestra.
3: Um, hi. Uh, I guess I had a question about uh, protest marches. I'd gone to several mm-hmm. since the election. And sometimes they're not really noticed in the news. And it's great to meet a lot of other people who are interested. But I also get the sense that they're being used to uh, fire up those who, whose joy has become getting American liberals angry mm-hmm. and that um, I, I'm guessing from your last, quest, your last response that your answer is, well, there should just be so many of us that it doesn't matter, but I kind of get the sense that every time we get fired up, we're kind of firing up even more people who support the president because, yeah, you know, and that kind of thing.
2: <laughs> I, I think this is a very important question because it, this is how a lot of, De- this is a thing that a lot of Democrats think about, and I think about thinking about too much, which is if I do X, Republicans will respond with Y. And so should I do X, right? I think we have to assume as a matter of political strategy that the Republicans are going to be as fired up as they possibly can be. Every possible Republican voter is going to turn out that it was true in 2016. That was true for the Republicans in 2018. They didn't win because their turnout was low. Oh, sorry. We didn't win because our turnout was low. We won because our turnout was high. and It was higher than theirs. And so I'm, try- I'm trying to convince Democrats to do what we think is the right thing that help- that is consistent with our values and helps us win elections without worrying about how Republicans are going to react. Because they're like, we should do the protesting that we think, the organizing that we think, and not worry about whether it upsets them because they are going to find a grievance somewhere. Right? This is a... They are, Republicans are, the Republican Party is a grievance party. That is what Fox News does. That is what Trump does. And so if we do no more protesting, they will find one protester with one sign somewhere, and that person will be on Fox News 24-7. And they will think that people were marching in the streets. So we should do what we do and not worry so much about what they're going to do.
4: When uh, we win the election, and it's in a huge, huge, you know, Democratic victory, what do we do when Donald Trump won't leave office?
2: I don't think I have done an event anywhere in the country in two years when I haven't gotten asked this question. And so, first thing I would say is, high class problem. We have won the election, right? So we will cross the bridge when we come to it. Second, I've never like the serious version of that is he's going to just refuse, like, he's, like in a authoritarian third world country, he's gonna to refuse to leave. And that, that really, the way that happens in other countries is it requires the military to side with the president. Now, most of, that's not a thing I'm very concerned about. I, like, I don't think that's gonna happen. I don't think that they're going to undo the, Amer- the will of the American election. So what it really comes down, and then we should all just understand that no matter how much we win by, Donald Trump will say we cheated. Because he says we cheated in the election he won. (laughs) So, but so then I try to imagine like, what's the version where he just doesn't leave and like, and the way I like to picture it is, I imagine Elizabeth Warren working at the desk in the Oval Office And Trump is just, like, (laughs) pouting on the couch for a while. And so, like, there are lots of concerns about if the election goes to the Supreme Court in a Bush-Gore v. way. And, like, that is very 100% concerning because the Supreme Court is completely rigged. But the idea that we win the election and Trump just refuses to do it, like, we'll find a place to send his boxes, right? So we will figure that part out. So let's win the election and then go from there.
4: This is coming from the
0: very back to your left.
2: Hi, I'm a high school senior here in San Francisco. In... Oh. In eight, nine months, I'll be a freshman in college. If you, can't tell, if you can't tell by the fact that I'm here on a Thursday night, I'm interested in politics. <laughs> Um, what is your advice to somebody just getting their independence in the world, uh, going forward in politics? I mean, what I, what I, one, I think that's amazing that you're you're light years ahead of me by being at an event on a Thursday night while you're still in high school. Um, so that is great, and that your interest in politics is, I think, fabulous. Like the advice I would give is. Volunteer as many places as your schedule and time will let you. Early on, like get in. Like and something to think about is the smaller the campaign, like a local campaign, the greater opportunity you'll have to see how it works and do some sus- substantive work and really try it on. But I tried lots of different things, and I would focus your time and energy around people and causes you're passionate about, and less about like what it looks like on your resume going forward, because you're always going to do better on the campaign where you, you're always gonna do better when you're passionate about something, right? Like we always say, choose the candidate you want to win or the candidate you think will win. And so like when you're young, don't have a five-year plan, don't have a two-year plan, just find things you're passionate about and go help and see where it takes you. This
0: question is in the center of the orchestra.
3: Hi, I'm with Swing Left, Sonoma County, and Invisible Hillsburg, and a bunch of other stuff. I was 64 years old before I ever did one damn political thing in my life. And we had sent 30-something people to Orange County. And I want to know what it's going to take to get people in this room to go knock on doors. Because I'm telling you, we all helped flipped Orange County. And we've got to protect the hell out of those seats and 21 and 10. And Arizona. And Arizona, Arizona. but anything <laughs> that you can help get people out because they're afraid to knock on doors.
2: Well, I'd have a question for you is, is there a place where people in this room who are interested could sign up to do that?
3: Oh, absolutely. You go on swingleft.com, you go on any of the, in- what? .org, .org. .org. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> But you can go canvassing you you sign up with the campaigns every District has their own campaign and you can sign up on mobilize, but you've got to do it. It is the most Fulfilling days. I have ever spent in my life.
2: I Would please do that. I would add to it is You're gonna spend if you're a person who is deeply concerned about the outcome of this election, you're gonna spend every day between now and the first Tuesday in November, anxious and a little bit angry. And there's no better way to channel that than making phone calls, knocking doors, and getting involved. And there's no better organization to do that with than Swing Left and Indivisible. So I would encourage it.
4: This is from
0: the very back
2: towards your left. Hi, Dan. Hi.
0: So I know you're very focused on the Senate, and say, by the good grace of God, we
1: actually get McConnell out. Um, mm. <laughs> how dramatic of a thing do you think that would be? Like, would that obviously not solve all the problems? But what do you think will actually happen?
0: Like, the benefits that are going to come from that? If the
2: Democrats are in charge of the Senate. Yes. Well, so here's here's my what I imagine what I would hope the Democrats would do. So we have taken the Senate, we've taken the White House. It's a beautiful inaugural day. We are there, Donald Trump is there. He doesn't look too happy. (laughs) Melania has not shown up. (laughs) As soon as our president, he or she, finishes taking the Oval Office, the the Senate Democrats, the senators, instead of going to a party, they walk right into the wall of the Senate The first thing they do is eliminate the filibuster. The second thing they do is they make DC a state. The third thing they do is they add two Supreme Court justices. And if we do those things, even if we only do the first two, I'm for the third, but there's some disagreement on that. But we're working, we're working on people is If you do the first two things, that means we can start passing our legislative agenda. And just to be clear, there is nothing more important than getting, the the White House is very important, but the White House without the Senate means that our president will pass no laws. Not a one. Not Medicare for all, not Medicare for some, not Medicare for one extra person in America. (laughs) None. Because if you need, Mitch McConnell will bring no bills to the Senate. He will bring nothing a Democrat president wants. And just to be very clear about something, if on the way home from that Democrat president's inauguration, one of the Supreme Court justices decide they, they want to take up fly fishing and, and we're going to retire, Mitch McConnell would hold that seat open for four to eight years. It is the, the politics of him putting a, Democrat, a, a Democrat-appointed justice on the court are impossible for him. And so if we want to have any chance of this one in the Supreme Court in the next many years, it's going to require putting the White House on the Senate. And just to motivate you enough on this, is when Brett Kavanaugh, not America's best person, as far as I'm concerned, but when Brett Kavanaugh is Ruth Bader, Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's age today, my daughter will be 32. She turns two in May. And so that is why we have to have the Senate. If we won't have a chance to influence the Supreme Court. Uplifting, I know. <clears throat>
0: This question's all the way at your left.
4: Hi, you've spent an hour plus talking about our political situation without mentioning anything outside the U.S. And Trump is a big problem, but he's only part of a bigger global shift to authoritarianism and the right wing. And I wonder if you could put that in some context for us. It,
2: yes, it, like the point you make is that what we're seeing in the United States is something that is happening around the world. It's happening. It's happened in Europe. Brexit is related to this. The general rise of authoritarians in places like India, Turkey, other countries like Saudi Arabia, which have had a full, Brazil, another one, and the U.S. Donald Trump is both a product of this global populist, and not economically populist, really nativist, this nativist trend that's happening around the world. It is fueled in part by fears around immigration and demographic change. It is also fueled in part by Russia, which has been encouraging this with election interference and social media. He also is catalyzing it because the United, this was happening before Donald Trump was elected. And the United States tried to be a little bit of a break on it, right? And I was talking to someone who had just, one of my friends who you may know from Cricket Media, Ben Rhodes, who worked for President Obama, and he had been talking to a political analyst in India a few months ago. And this is timely given Trump's recent visit. And he was asking this person how Trump's election had affected what was happening in India, because Modi had a certain set was, you know, had these, authoritarian impulses and activity before Trump was elected. But what this analyst said that was when Obama was president, the United States was seen as someone who would vocally oppose such behavior in order to be able to have a seat at the table at the G20 or to be able part of, a, of the, the conversations around the around the world. You had you couldn't lean into that part of your behavior. But now that Trump celebrates authoritarianism, echoes a lot of typical authoritarian points around free press and democracy. It encourages that the way to get the attention the United States now is to act like an authoritarian, not to resist those impulses in your country. And that is very dangerous. I don't I am not an expert in foreign policy, by my imagination. I all of the instances are related, but somewhat different. And my main focus and why I wrote this book is on how, what we can do in the United States. If we can get the United States back to the place where we had a leader who was a product of our democracy and reflected democracy and believed that the United States had a, 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 ro- a, a role to play in making the, the world, a role to play on the world stage, we can, we can do that, right? If we don't fix our problem at home, we're not gonna be able to do anything to influence uh, what's happening abroad. I think there's a, on a broader question, there's a lot that, sh- that we should think about about the, the role that social media has played in inciting some of these pre-existing tensions around the world, and many of those companies are based here, like literally here. And so that, that is the one part where the US, what's happening in the US is influencing that. But I think my main focus, others are focused on the broader thing, my main focus is how we fix it here first.
1: I think we have time for one more question.
0: This is coming from the back in the center.
4: Hi, um, so you spoke earlier about the need for the Democratic nominee to begin defining him or herself, operating off of the assumption that that's Sanders for the purpose of this question. Um, a few weeks ago, maybe or a couple of ago, you guys talked on your podcast about um, how Sanders needs to stop defending democratic socialism in terms of other countries are doing it, or even just mentioning democratic socialism like many, many, many times in his response to a moderator's question, can an American elect a democratic socialist? Instead, um, someone argued, it might have been you, uh, that Sanders should couch his ideas in terms of the American political tradition, that Medicare for all is something that, that, uh, right, we fought for, for a century in the Democratic Party. I'm listening to your podcast, and sometimes I'm thinking, I wish the Sanders campaign was listening to your podcast and not me. (laughs) So I guess my question is, do you guys ever interact with the campaigns? Do you offer your advice? Um, (laughs) Is there a plan moving forward to maybe, in some humble way, give them some advice? Because I think what you're saying is really cogent, but like, they also need to hear it, and sometimes it feels like they're not, because they're so stuck in that bubble.
2: We... Yeah, the answer to the question is, yes, we do interact with the campaigns all the time. Many of the people who work for all the campaigns, including the Sanders campaign, are people that we have worked with, many of them in Obama world and other campaigns. There's a, it's a smaller, it's a small universe of people who make the completely insane decision to do campaigns for a living. We know many of them. And my view has always been in this election that I would offer advice to any candidate on the Democratic side who asked, right? And the, like, I think the Sanders campaign has run a great campaign. The, the point you make about the Democratic, establishing Sanders' views within the mainstream democratic tradition is something Sanders actually did himself earlier in the campaign. He went and gave a speech that talk, they basically said that his democratic socialism was an extension of FDR's New Deal policies, which that is that is true, right? And they need to do that. But like, whoever our nominee is, we will do anything and everything we can to be helpful, privately or publicly. I am whoever it is, of anyone who was on that stage the other night. And if they, and for two reasons, that person is a million times better than Trump. But I also believe that our weakest candidate, whoever that may be, has a better chance of beating Trump with a united Democratic Party than our strongest candidate with a divided party. And so it's gonna be very important (laughs) for it's gonna be very important for uh, the party to unite. And we, the one thing, we, that's one of the reasons why we have tried to do as best we can about some form of neutrality of sorts is we wanna be in a place where we can be helpful with our listeners in any way that might be to help unite people behind that nominee. So my phone is open, my DMs are open, I'm happy to talk to anyone and everyone, uh, whoever for our nominee or anyone else running and the Democratic Party up and down the ballot, if it, if it is at all helpful to them in a small way.
1: Dan Pfeiffer, thank you so much. And thank mm-hmm. you to all everyone yeah. for coming out.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: You've been listening to Dan Pfeiffer in conversation with Lara Bazelon. This program was recorded at the Sidney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco on February 27, 2020. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate goldstein Breyer and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Production and Communications Assistant is Juliette Gelfman-Rendazzo. The Post-Production Director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theater Technical Director, Steve Eckard. House Manager, Lucy Faulkner. The recording engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sidney Goldstein. To attend the live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.